some of the listeners might be saying, well, who's Justin Snodgrass? <laughs> and who is this guy? And I want to just give a little bit of background. When Mike and I were in the process of editing our film, I don't re- even remember. I mean, it's been so long ago how I came up. Uh, across that one um, drawing, is it, I don't know if is it a drawing or painting of you in the chair with Tom's oh, book, yeah. My Big Toe. Yeah, it's a charcoal drawing. Charcoal drawing. Yeah, I saw this, and I don't remember if maybe you had posted it up on Tom's forum or if it was on social media or something tagged. But I immediately right. was like, Oh my god, we have to use this. We have to use this <laughs> for the film. Um, this is going to go in a perfect place, you know, when Tom's talking about the hemisync music because you have the earphones on in the. In in the right. picture yeah. and you're kind of elevated and looks like to be coming up and out of your body. And I remember that we just, you know, emailed you, contacted you, said, Hey, can we use this for our film? And you were like, absolutely. Yeah. I was totally excited that you wanted to use it. So it, it's been, and you know, when I want, whenever I rewatch the movie, I f- kind of forget that it's in there and it'll pop up and I get kind of confused for a minute. It's like, Oh, Oh yeah, that's right. I, the, the drawings in the movie. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who have seen beyond the physical or have not yet, you can uh, look for the cameo appearance of Justin's <laughs> art. And then I guess, you know, through the years we've just kind of, you know, kept in touch through Facebook, social media. And, uh, we, one of our friends, Garrick recently uh, approached us to let us know that you had written a thesis for your master's degree. Is that correct? Right. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it has just some great stuff in there about your personal experiences with out-of-body experiences, lucid dreaming. And then I really liked how you tied in some of Tom Campbell's um, My Big Toe Theory and other physicists. And it was it was just fascinating to read. You're an excellent writer, by the way. Oh, thank um, you. Thank you. And really, you know, really enjoyed it. So we were hoping that we can talk a little bit about some of your experience, you know, and just being a, a fan of the show and, you know, following us as well. We always like to hear about other people's out-of-body experiences and lucid dreaming and things of that sort. So maybe you can bring the listeners on your journey of how you kind of began this consciousness exploration for yourself. Sure. The kind of the, I guess, the pivotal moment that turned me into a seeker uh, happened when I was, I was 18 or 19. And uh, I think I was either just finishing my senior year in high school, or maybe it was the summer after. But uh, I was down at the baseball fields of our small town with a friend and it was nighttime and we both saw a UFO in the sky. And it was, you know, the type of experience that was completely mind blowing and you couldn't explain it by any natural means. Uh, and in fact, right after it had happened, uh, well, what it was is these giant lights in the sky. And at first we didn't notice it. Uh, we just kind of noticed this strange blue and red hue uh, inside of the truck. And eventually we looked up to trying to figure out where this light was coming from. And we just saw these massive uh, white lights in the sky. It was a giant row uh, right above the truck that we were parked in. And uh, the lights would blink for a while, then they would vanish and reappear in a completely different part of the sky and blink over there for a while in sort of these random patterns. So it just jumped across, you know, miles and miles of sky instantaneously. And uh, we had our windows down. It was summer or late spring, so it was completely silent. So this went on for probably, I don't know, three or four minutes maybe. And then it finally just vanished uh, for good. And so we both just kind of sat there completely stunned, not really sure what to say or, or do about it. And uh, it was a couple minutes after that that a little single-engine uh, plane flew overhead. 
and I'm not sure how high up it was, but it was, you know, it was low enough that you could make it out and you could make out the port and starboard uh, red and green lights on it. And, you know, in, in comparison, it really put it into perspective because the plane was really small. It was moving really slow and it was really loud. So that it's almost uh, gave me a little bit of evidential data that I didn't just make up what we had seen. So <clears throat> that stuck with me for obviously the rest of my life. And uh, from there, I went on and joined the, joined the Navy. I was kind of a, a troublemaker in high school, I guess you could say. So I didn't have a lot of direction at that time. So I figured, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I just thought, well, I'll join the Navy and see the world. So once I got into the Navy, I kind of discovered reading for the first time. Uh, I, I, I laugh and I tell my kids this all the time that I don't think I ever actually finished a book all the way through uh, throughout grade school and high school. Um, I think I read some of Huckleberry Finn and, you know, didn't finish it. And maybe some of the Scarlet Letter, I think we had to read. But it wasn't until the Navy that I read, uh, I think it was a book about Jim Morrison or The Doors. And I, j I was just really intrigued that there's there's a ton of information in reading a book. And you can really uh, learn a lot from reading a book. And just kind of the experience of sitting down and zoning out and uh, going into another world as you read a book. So I kind of got hooked on reading, and that eventually led to reading books about spirituality. Uh, I read some books about Buddhism, the Tibetan book of uh, living and dying. I read the Bible, and it started this big, uh, I don't know, this big excitement opened up inside of me of trying to uncover who I was and why I was here and, uh, you know, what reality really was all about. So I continued reading and reading. I started meditating. Uh, and normally what I would do is I would go up on top of the the upper deck of the ship at nighttime when we were out at sea. And I'd take my chair up there. And it's it's a perfect place to meditate because it's completely dark outside. It's You have the hum of the ocean and the waves splashing and the engines kind of rumbling underneath you. Uh, and the ship's got a gentle rock to it. So uh, I really enjoyed that and it helped me get into some pretty good meditative states. But one particular night, I was, I was feeling pretty frustrated and overwhelmed at not really coming up with any answers. Uh, you know, I had all this information after a couple of years of just burying myself in, in books, but I hadn't really come to any uh, solid conclusions yet. So I was feeling pretty uh, down and out about it. So, you know, with tears in my eyes, I just started saying, you know, please show me the way. I want to know the truth. I want to know why I'm here. You know, I want to know everything. And so... <laughs> the lesson I learned from that is you kind of have to be careful what you ask for sometimes <laughs> because I started having, from there my life kind of got really, really weird. I started having a lot of synchronistic uh, events happen to me on a daily basis. Um, I started having spontaneous lucid dreams, which even though I had read all these books, a lot of them were more, I guess, philosophical and, uh, you know, things like the Celestine Prophecy. Uh, I think I read Raymond Moody, but somewhere I... I Nowhere in there did I come across the terms lucid dreaming or out of body. So I really didn't know much about it or that it was even possible. So when it happened to me, uh, it, it really blew my mind because I, I woke up thinking, my gosh, can, does everybody know about this? Like if, if they do, why, why aren't they talking about it? This is crazy. You can come, you know, wake up in your dreams and play around and do all sorts of things. So the lucid dreams kind of continued spontaneously. And I started keeping a dream journal, which now I know is, you know, a perfect way to have more lucid dreams. Uh, but along with that, I started getting sleep paralysis uh, on a pretty regular basis. So you can imagine in a span of three years, I just buried myself in all this existential thinking and deep thoughts, and it, was, it became overwhelming. And all these new experiences, 
So the sleep paralysis uh, generated a lot of fear in me because I felt like I was getting in over my head. Uh, so the sleep paralysis went on for many, many months until finally I was basically just sick and tired of being afraid of it. You know, I would go to bed at night and it would happen three or four times a night, sometimes, you know, four times a week. So I got to the point where I dreaded going to bed at night because it was so frightening and I had no idea what was happening. Uh, so eventually one night I said, you know what, if it happens, then the next time it happens, I'm just going to completely give into it. I'm tired of being afraid if I die or if something happens that's fine. I'm just going to go ahead and just let it happen. And so the next time it happened, I did just that. And of course, the sensations built and it got really intense. And, you know, it, it, sleep paralysis is funny because if you let it go like that, it gets to a point where it feels like it's building so strongly that it's, it's almost like you're going to explode. Uh, so I got to that point, but, you know, right before it hits the pinnacle, uh, I had the sensation of lifting up out of my body. And of course, everything got really silent and peaceful and quiet. And I lifted up through kind of the pipework of the, the ship and up above the ship and then found myself uh, shooting through a tunnel. And of course, I had, you know, I had my full awareness with me and I was just thinking, what, what is this? Like, this is, wait a minute, what's going on? I can't figure out where, where I am and this feels real. So all these thoughts are kind of racing through my mind as I'm shooting through this tunnel. And uh, eventually I ended up in... Uh, a black void, which is now I understand to be, for me anyway, it's a common occurrence without a body and lucid dreaming, but it's, it's that kind of dense, three-dimensional black void of nothingness where you're just existing as kind of a, a point of awareness. So I ended up in that void and I started to kind of wonder, did I, did I die in my sleep or, you know, did I, did something happen that I'm not in my body anymore? Uh, so of course, you know, the first thing that came to my mind was, uh, I want, to, I want to see God. I want to meet God. Because at that time, like I said, I'd been reading the Bible and I kind of had this idea that there was a, a higher power guiding me along. So that was the first thing that popped in my mind. But as soon as I finished thinking that thought, I was shot back to my body immediately and uh, you know, woke up in my Navy bunk, completely stunned, wondering what in the world was that? Um, and I, that was kind of the that was the first out-of-body experience, and then it didn't happen for quite a few years uh, after that. I kind of went back to, I kind of ignored it because it scared me a little bit. I went back to lucid dreaming, and uh, things continued to be pretty strange. There was a lot of sort of random paranormal events. Uh, in my thesis, I talk about the one where I kind of spontaneously remote-viewed my friend's identification card, and I had had some experiences uh, when I went home on leave where I found that I could seemingly communicate with animals telepathically. Uh, you know, one example is I was at a friend's house and I was trying to communicate to the dog to come sit on my lap. And it was this big Great Dane and I thought it'd be kind of funny if he actually did it. Well, you know, a minute later he came and sat on my lap and my friend came in going, what's he doing? He never does that. And, you know, so you get enough of these little bits of evidence that you have to be skeptical about. But when, when the pile of all those little bits gets big enough, you start to realize that there's something else going on. There's, there's some kind of guidance and there's some other uh, story than what you, know, you maybe previously thought. So, so that kind of rocked my world, all those experiences in the Navy. And then once I got out of the Navy, um, I got married and, of course, had kids. And, you know, things kind of slow down when that all happens, and it's a whole new adventure. So I still continue to have kind of sporadic events throughout, um, well, I guess it would have been about a nine or ten year span. So maybe once every two months or once a month, I'd have uh, 
a lucid dream or an out-of-body experience. And at, at that time, even during that span of 10 years, I still hadn't really come across the terms lucid dreaming or out-of-body or sleep paralysis. So it was all still kind of mysterious to me. And I, for the most part, thought that I was just kind of uh, exploring my own psyche or my own subconscious. Um, but I hadn't really considered that it might actually be some other reality and you know, actually interacting with other beings or anything like that. So I didn't take it too seriously. Um, but then I guess it was 2000, 2008, I was on the computer doing something and there was a TV special on and it was Steven LeBerg uh, talking about his research into lucid dreaming. And as soon as I heard the term lucid dreaming, I thought, that's, that's it. That's, that's the word. That's what I've been doing because it's, you know, you're lucidly aware in a dream. That's got to be it. So I, you know, went over to the TV and watched the special and ordered his book right away, um, exploring the world of lucid dreaming, devoured that book and was totally excited that I kind of now had a, a plan to control these experiences that I've had. And I kind of had a label for it. I, you know, read what sleep paralysis was, read about lucid dreaming and kind of had an idea of what was going on. So for the next two years, I dove into lucid dreaming and practiced all the techniques. I, I still avoided the, what I think is called, uh, let's see, wake-induced lucid dreaming, where you go through sleep paralysis to, to enter a lucid dream, because I, I still was scared to death of sleep paralysis and found it completely uncomfortable. So I avoided that and did mostly you know, the techniques where you wake and go back to bed and you set your intent at night and got to be pretty proficient at it, where if I had the time to put steady effort into it. I could probably have three or four lucid dreams in a week uh, on a good week. Um, so I did that for about two years. And in doing that, I started to research more about lucid dreaming and different techniques. And I started becoming active on a couple of the different lucid dreaming sites just to get information. And the term out of body and astral projection kept coming up like in advertisements and people would mention it. And I just kind of set it aside as maybe a little bit too new agey and weird for me. And I just thought, you know, I, I categorized it under witchcraft and stuff I don't really want to mess with. Um, but eventually I saw it enough that I somehow ended up with Bob Monroe's book in my lap. I think I must have just ordered it on a whim or something. Uh, but I read Bob's book and it, of course, completely shocked me because I realized, now, wait a minute, this guy's describing some of the same experiences that I've had, you know, since way back when in the Navy, but he's saying that they're, he's calling them out-of-body experiences where Stephen LeBerg is calling them lucid dreams. So I was kind of stuck wondering, well, which one am I having? Am I Am I just playing around in my own subconscious and psyche, or am I actually somewhere else, uh, you know, going to places that maybe I, I ought not be, kind of like a toddler running around a machine shop unaware of all the dangers? So it added kind of a new element of fear that maybe it was actually real, and these events and places were, were a lot more real than I had previously thought. Um, but I still wanted to know. I mean, I just, even though I was frightened by it, I, I had to know more about it, so... Uh, I just kept going with the lucid dreaming, and then I started using sleep paralysis, uh, as Stephen LeBerga suggested, to, to enter a lucid dream state. And of course, it just kind of depends on your perspective. You could enter, uh, you could get to a lucid dream through sleep paralysis and call it a lucid dream, or you could enter sleep paralysis or a vibrational state and have what you might call an out-of-body experience. And so I think the kind of the one, I guess, advantage that I had in terms of understanding maybe a bigger picture of some of this is that I didn't really know any of those terms until 2008. So I just had the experience and I didn't really know how to categorize them. 
so when I did learn the terms out-of-body lucid dreaming, sleep paralysis, uh, I realized that they were all describing kind of, or at least lucid dreaming, astral projection, and out-of-body were describing all of my experiences. So there, the boundaries became really fuzzy. And that's one thing that later on when I uh, read My Big Toe and listened to some of Tom's interviews and asked him questions about it, I realized there, at least from what I can tell, and I know a lot of the experts even might disagree, there's no real distinction between the two, out-of-body and uh, lucid dreaming, and also to include astral projection. It's so subjective of an experience if you believe you're having a lucid dream and that you have to go back to your body and then project from your body, well, that's, that's the expectation that you're setting, and that's probably what you're going to have to do to make it happen, or else it won't happen because uh, your expectation sets the reality of the experience. So I feel lucky in that I didn't have a lot of those expectations before having the experiences. So when I started reading, uh, after I read Bob's book, of course, I was you know, hooked and started reading all the, you know, Robert Bruce and William Buhlman and uh, some of the other lucid dreaming books. Uh, I can't think of the author's name right now. You guys just had him on your show. Uh, Robert, or I mean, uh, let's see, Wagner is his last name? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I really enjoyed his book, but what I noticed from his book is I, I felt like he was approaching it as an out-of-body experience, but just giving it a different name. You know, he was kind of approaching it as a way to uncover truths about himself and to kind of, uh, as a way to evolve. So, with all that in mind, I've, for myself, I've kind of come to the conclusion that there's really only two primary states of being while we're centered here in this physical reality. And that the first one is when you're focused in your body, doing your daily activities and interacting with the physical world. And the second one is pretty much anytime you're not doing that, when you're doing something and you're not aware of or not connected to your physical body. And from the best that I can tell, there's no real distinction. And that, and that includes when you're maybe doing a remote viewing session, let's say sitting at a desk and you're just meditating and you get absorbed in the visuals and the... Uh, the information that you're receiving, you're not aware of your body when you're doing that for the most part. You're mostly tuned in to that other state. So for all intents and purposes, that, that in and of itself is an out-of-body experience, or at least it's a non-physical experience. So I've learned to kind of categorize either it's a physical experience or a non-physical experience. And of course, you can have, you know, there's a spectrum in between where you can be tuned in to some of one and some of the other uh, which might be the case maybe with a lot of people that do intuitive work or healing or uh, even channeling. So after I sort of got into this out-of-body thing, I, I uh, kept stumbling on some of Tom Campbell's videos. And that I laugh now because at first I thought, you know, who's, who's this guy? He's some kind of eccentric scientist. You know, he's going to solve everything with an equation and, you know, math, you know, math magician type of thing. Uh, but I... I kept seeing his name pop up and kept seeing his videos. So I finally watched a couple of them and I thought, wait a minute, this, this sounds really interesting. So I ordered his book and uh, his book completely blew me away. All of the things that I had almost come to, all of the conclusions that, I've, that I had almost made throughout all the experiences and reading and you know, deep thinking about the meaning of life and that kind of stuff, he kind of finished my sentences for me and my thought for me and made it into a complete whole. So any gaps that I had, you know, my big toe kind of easily filled them in. So suddenly I had this really big picture of all of my experiences, all of the strange experiences, and also this, the everyday experiences, you know, the struggles of life. And I found that the ideas that I had started to come to on my own 
were basically the same as my big toe. Of course, my big toe was, you know, a multitude more thorough and based on a lot more experience. But I really latched onto it for that. And uh, that was probably 2010, I think, that I first read it. And since then, I've, you know, basically, I guess you could say, been a you know, close follower of Tom uh, and really have been able to apply a lot of the fundamental concepts of my big toe to my, my personal life. And to look back at 2010 when I, when I first read the book and to look at my life now, I feel like I've lived a, a complete lifetime in just that you know, five or six years. I feel like a completely different person. I have a completely different motivation, even though it's still basically the path of seeking and trying to uncover truth. Um, it's a lot more powerful and a lot more active, I guess I could say. And uh, those kind of things just, they really have a big effect on you when you fully engage the, the schoolhouse, I guess you could say. When you start to become a good student who pays attention and, you know, wants to learn and grow, you start to get fed, I think, a lot of nudges and a lot of help. And the more that that comes, the more you grow and the more you grow, the more you want to grow. And then it kind of just uh, compounds on itself. And so now I've yeah, like I said, I've been following Tom's work for five or six years, and I help out with the, the fireside chats that he does every month and really enjoy that. And uh, the latest thing that I got to do, which was really exciting, was to go to the Monroe Institute for his first uh, My Big Toe intensive uh, six-day program that he did. Um, and that, that, that's, that was a huge uh, milestone, I think, or it's going to be a huge milestone for me in terms of uh, what the future is going to bring. So that's that's pretty much the long version of of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and how how was uh, his intensive? And you know, how is it different from watching his videos or you know interacting with him online and actually being there? And d- was there an experiential part of of it, or was it full lecture? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And that was kind of when I first saw that he was going to be doing it. My first question was, "Oh, wow, is he going to be you know guiding these meditation sessions in the check units that that Monroe has?" And uh, and, it, and that's pretty much what it was. I mean, he did uh, some lecturing and some question and answer. And I feel like he he said a lot. Maybe said some more things that he might not say uh, in a public forum. Not that they were secrets or anything, but I think it was more specific to you know, the 23 or 24 people that were there. So there was a lot of good information. Uh, but for the most part, it was experiential. I mean, we were in the check units probably, let's see, I want to say twice in the morning, once in the afternoon, and maybe once in the evening. So four or five times a day. Then, of course, you have the usual follow-up uh, afterwards. You, you know, meet back down in the, the living room or whatever they call it, I forget, and you discuss your experiences and, and whatnot. And that, that's only been my second program at Monroe. The first one was William Buhlman's, which, which was absolutely great. But I think just because Tom has had such a profound impact on my life, I was a little bit more excited about the My Big Toe one. Um, so in that regard, it was, I, I had really high expectations going in, and they were completely met a thousandfold. I mean, I really felt like I was at Hogwarts Castle, you know, and I had to go back home to, <laughs> to the real world when it was all over. And I... I think a lot of the other people there had the same feeling. I mean, there was a, a, a lot of breakthroughs for people. I mean, there was a lot of tear shed, a lot of happiness. Uh, it was a really, really powerful experience. And I think that's, that's common at Monroe, but I, I kind of feel like this might have been at a different level, so to speak. Um, and of course, meeting Tom in person as opposed to seeing him on video was pretty, uh, it was intense. I mean, I, 
I don't really know how to explain it other than you feel like you're, <laughs> you're standing in the presence of a guru. Yeah. And I, I hate to even say that, but he just has such a powerful presence and he's so crystal clear. Um, I feel like I almost don't even have to speak to him. I can just stand there and he knows what I'm trying to say or what I mean to say. Um, and, you know, he has that ability when he answers questions directly. He, he kind of knows what you're asking, even if you don't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So it was, it was a really powerful experience. Met a lot of great people. And uh, I kind of had a, a big breakthrough for me because for the last, oh gosh, I guess it's been three years, I've been hung up on trying to learn how to transition from this state that I'm in right now to an out-of-body state. In other words, go lay down, be fully conscious, pass through the vibrational state right into an out-of-body experience. Because for me, it's always been a lapse in awareness. I've come close where I've meditated you know, for 45 minutes and taken the headphones off, been in a good state, fallen asleep, and then waking up some minutes later in vibrational state or sleep paralysis and then been able to go and you know, have an adventure. But I really wanted to not have that lapse in awareness. I wanted to understand like the process of the transition so that I could basically master it so that I wouldn't, it wouldn't be so haphazard. And I think this is the case for a lot of people. It's, it's pretty uh, hit and miss with a lot of these techniques. You know, sometimes it's easy and you get out and you have this vivid, crisp, amazing experience and you're talking to beans and things are happening and you, you know, wake up and write it down. Then there's other times, and at least for me and from talking to other people, it's this way. You, you might wake up in sleep paralysis and you're trying to get out of your body, but you can and finally you do and then you're stuck kind of tumbling in darkness and maybe you land in your hallway finally, but you can't quite get things to be clear and you try all the you know, techniques, clarity now and clapping your hands and spinning and it just doesn't work. So I wanted to understand how to get there easily so that I could start to unravel why those inconsistencies are there. And so I've been, you know, working on that for off and on for three years, not, not full time, obviously, because I have kids and whatnot. So I, you know, doing an hour and a half meditation session in the middle of the day is not practical. So I squeeze it in when I can. Um, but, and, you know, Tom had always said that transitioning from here to there is just, you know, a snap of the fingers. It takes a tenth of a second and you're there. And I always thought, well, okay, maybe, but I want to understand the process. And what I wasn't hearing him say or what I didn't register was he was saying there is no process. There is nothing to do. The only process is the one that you create for yourself. Right. And I thought, well, okay, but I want to learn the process. You know what I mean? I was stubborn, <laughs> just like I didn't get it. So when we were at the, uh, the Monroe Institute with Tom, I was about halfway through the week and, you know, I was getting into good meditative states. I was getting vibrations and, you know, uh, I felt really clear, like I was making progress, but I just couldn't get to that next step to transition. And, you know, there's people talking about, oh, I went here and I did this and I went here and I did that and I healed my sister and, you know, Utah. And I'm thinking, okay, but are they, are they going and doing this or is this more of a mental practice? Because, my belief, which I'm kind of starting to unravel now, was that it had to be vivid, crisp, and real for it to be real. It had to have that feeling of you're actually there somewhere engaged in an environment. And I, I really kind of knew better in light of Tom's work because, you know, in the non-physical, there really is no quote-unquote environment and you don't have eyes and ears or taste buds. It's all interpreted data that we're interpreting based on our habits here. And I knew all that, but I just... Like, again, I was being stubborn and just not quite hearing it. So anyway, I had an experience where Tom basically, I told him I was frustrated. I'm having a hard time. And he said, just, 
just let go of everything you're trying to do and just let it happen. And I think the key thing that I had started to figure out uh, previously that Tom verified for me is that it, sometimes it requires you to kind of play around. You know, you get into a good meditative state and you might start getting hypnagogic, hypnagogic uh, images and those sort of things. And uh, he kind of gave me permission to, to start playing around with some of it. You know, ask a question and just see what I get back. And of course, my mode of thinking was, well, if I get something back, it might be real. It might not be real. I, I want it to be real, so I have to be there to experience it. But he kept saying, no, just start playing around and just see what you get and let go of all your expectations. So finally, I, I did that in a session. I just said, okay, I'm going to forget about all of it. I'm just going to get into a good meditative state. I'm going to pretend like I'm directly interacting with what he would call the larger consciousness system. And so I'm playing around, I'm asking questions, and I started, uh, the visuals started to get a little stronger. I was getting like a, a green light on my right side and the blackness behind my eyes when the answer was yes and a red light when it was no. And then it would kind of waver in between if it was maybe. And then I started kind of to get an intuitive sense of what these different uh, symbols and metaphors were supposed to mean. Yes, no, maybe, or, you know, figure it out yourself, those kind of things. But then I, so I thought, okay, this is fun, but how do you know? you know, if it's really happening or not. But then I got a, an image of one of the participants in the program, and I thought, okay, well, what's that about? And then I started getting an image of what I understood to be his mom. And I got certain clues uh, that it was, or certain clues that I was supposed to tell this person to verify that it was his mom. And I was asking these questions, am I supposed to tell him about this? And I got the green light, yes. You know, what else should I tell him? And then I got information about like, uh, one of the examples was I got the idea of ring and diamond, but I was kind of confused because it wasn't diamond ring, it was just ring and diamond together, but kind of separate. So I wrote that down when I got out and uh, a few other things that, uh, I probably won't mention because it might be too personal for him, but some evidential bits. And what's funny is I, I'm pretty adamant about not coming out of the check unit early. Like I stick it out to the very end and regardless if it's going good or bad for me. So I got the, this really strong sudden sense that I was supposed to get up right then and get out of the check unit early. And so I asked and asked, am I supposed to get out really? And then I got the green light, like a siren going off in my, in my vision. So I said, okay, I got up, got out of the check unit walk down the hall. And of course, everyone else is still in their units. And as soon as I turn the corner to go downstairs, this person comes out of his check unit or out of his room <laughs> and uh, meets me in the hallway. And I thought, oh, geez, this is, this is too much. So <laughs> I told him, I said, hey, you know, I, I kind of like to talk to you when, when you're done. He got out to use the restroom. He just had this, you know, uncontrollable urge to use the restroom. Um, of course, at the right time, right? Right. And so he met me back downstairs and I, and I felt comfortable telling him because I felt like it was there was some evidence there that what was going on in my session was real. So I wanted to go ahead and talk to him. So we talked about it. We both, you know, were in tears. It, it, there was a lot of meaning for him. There was a lot of connections. And when I asked him about the, you know, the ring and the diamond as two separate things, he showed me this big gold kind of, uh, I don't know, it looked like a class ring or a Super Bowl ring, that kind of thick gold ring. And in the middle of it, he had placed his mom's diamond from her ring that she had worn, uh, you know, all of her life or all of her marriage. So, you know, I got chills in the back of my neck and thought, okay, this is, this is the system telling me that's the way you're supposed to do it. You need mm -hmm. to quit banging your head against the wall like an idiot, you know, trying to figure out the process when there is no process. 
So that was a big breakthrough for me. And now I've, you know, of course, I'm back to reality with kids and soccer games and all this. So I'm trying to get back into my, my meditation sessions and practice it. Uh, and I've done it, uh, you know, a handful of times since the program. And I'm still getting the green and red light and these sort of different symbols and metaphors. And a few of them have, have had uh, evidential data. So I'm kind of in the mode now of taking that to the next step and, and seeing where that leads me. But uh, I'm glad that I don't have to keep trying to figure out a process that probably doesn't exist. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. Um, I, I, I see some parallels with my experience uh, growing up right. and you know, the last several years or so. I, I, I don't know if I've ever said it on the show, but I had the UFO experience as well. Oh, really? Um, nice. Yeah, actually a few times. I've never connected it with spirituality and, and this, uh, you know, altered consciousness, states of consciousness. Right. But I don't know, maybe it was my, cause I had a very Catholic upbringing. So I always kept, and I was a big X-Files <laughs> fan. So I always kept, you know, the UFO stuff, the, you know, that, that whole thing. I always kept it separate. Uh, right. But yeah. And then, you know, later on in life, when I, I I woken up to you know Tom and William and and this whole subject matter, if you go on the internet now and you 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 can see a connection with the UFOs and this these other right beings out there, but anyway I, I don't want to go too far down another rabbit hole but um, no it's a it's it, a good topic and you know I've had someone a couple people have read my thesis and asked me and I think they were both. Uh, familiar with Tom's work. So they were asking me, so do you think it was really a, an identified flying object and aliens? And, you know, or do you think it was just uh, kind of a nudge from the system saying, you know, wake up, reality's bigger than what you think. And I, I, I tend to think that for me specifically, it was kind of a nudge. Uh, I like to think that anyway. I have no idea, of course, but it seems likely that that was the case if I look at the chain of events that it kind of kicked off. Um, but then I've also had someone have had someone that's an intuitive tell me that I was actually, my memory was wiped out and I was taken up to, to a, a you know, another spaceship yeah. and, and, you know, and they're involved in my life now. So I'm open to that too. I mean, yeah. it, it could make sense, but I think a lot of the, from what I've seen on watching uh, some of the alien abduction stories, as I think a lot of it are really, uh, are alien encounters, not just specifically abductions. I think a lot of them are, altered states of consciousness where people are tapping into other realities and also tapping into their own fears uh, intermixed with those other realities. Um, I know that's been the case for me with sleep paralysis a lot of the times. Uh, you know, there's always the sensation that there's some looming figure in the room and there's feet steps and uh, a lot of people, you know, report all kinds of uh, different things kind of depending on their culture and their beliefs. Um, but I tend to think a lot of the nighttime alien abductions could be a result of sleep paralysis. But also, if you take seriously the idea that there is this larger consciousness system and we're just a very small blip in some dark corner somewhere, you can imagine uh, if you look at our Earth just by itself and look at all the different species of spiders and uh, you know, I don't know snails and dogs and cats and people it would make sense that the larger consciousness system, not just our universe, but the entire system is just full of every imaginable type of, of thing that, you know, could, could exist that we could imagine really. So the idea that 
some of that interacts with us <clears throat> as it's allowed or as it's able to it makes a lot of sense to me. So I think it's, it could be a blend of all of them. You know, maybe there are uh, aliens in this universe that, that have made contact. It doesn't seem that likely just based on the physical rules of, of our reality, but it's not impossible, I would say. So I think it probably is a mixture of, of all of those things. That, that's interesting how you brought up how it was uh, kind of like a signal for you once you saw the UFO. Have you, you, uh, you've heard of Bashar? Oh, yeah. Channel? Yeah. yeah. He, uh, I can't remember the guy's name that channels Bashar. Um, Daryl. Uh, Daryl. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Daryl something. Darryl, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll put him in the show notes. But uh, he, he saw a UFO when he was younger, and that was kind of the trigger for him to start channeling. Right, and uh, I'm sure there's a YouTube video out there that goes well into that description. But it uh, it was kind of like a, a pre-life contract that he had set up with this other being, Bashar, which is actually him. But right, uh, it's it's complicated. But yeah, it's interesting <laughs> how there's all these, these similar scenarios happening with other people too, and right, it's exactly, like starting this whole awakening i guess you would call it but uh yeah definitely uh, and it's go ahead no uh uh, yeah i was just i I just want to throw in a few other things too the uh which we call the sleep paralysis right i i had that several times when i was really young like 10 years old or so and that it's just like those pictures (laughs) that you your paintings that you had (laughs) right right and then the classic art that you compared it to and it it's like that I remember seeing that when being younger too. And uh, I think somebody was trying to scare me. It was probably an uncle or something, <laughs> but uh, like, Oh yeah. If you, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't move, it's a demon on your chest, you know, that kind of <laughs> right, thing. Right. And, oh, oh boy. Yeah. But that probably set me back like 20 years. Yeah. I was going to gonna say that's, that's not very good. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it's just interesting. And you, you did a terrific job with the, your, your own paintings and your thesis to, Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, um, I highly suggest everybody check them out. The, the artistry is just amazing, especially the. I'm I'm jumping all over here, but uh, the guy with the uh, brick. Oh right, yeah. The mop. Oh that, yeah. Are you selling this work or? Yeah, I, I am. I'm. I'm trying to. Okay. I just finished my the my uh, my master's degree, so you know a lot of the work was tied up and being made. And then, you know, you have the thesis show and there was a couple student shows that the stuff has been in, but there hasn't been a lot of focus on trying to sell it, you know, just because it was primarily uh, student work. But now that I've kind of got this body of work completed, uh, I'm starting to show it. There's, well, there's a local gallery just in our little small town here that's opening up and it's a good friend of mine and he's wanting to kind of showcase a variety of different artworks. Um, you know, it's not an LA gallery, but it's a it's a gallery, and I'm kind of glad for that because I, towards the end of my program, I kind of felt I started having second thoughts about painting. I was you know spending I'd spend eight hours a day painting, and after a while, you're holding this little brush. You know, basically you're a, you're a giant printer in some ways. You know what I mean? It's like what am I what am I really doing here? Um, and and eventually this this thing that I'm spending so much time on is just going to go. I mean, the goal of most fine art is it's going to go to some wealthy person and they're going to spend a lot of money on it because they can afford it. And that's going to be kind of the extent of it. And that just didn't, hasn't quite set right with me. I want, uh, I want more people to, to touch it and to see it and to be able to interact with it because I'm not just doing it to make money. Um, I'm partly doing it, honestly, just to get some of these ideas out of me 
uh, without talking about them directly. Because, you know, it's, you guys, I'm sure, are well aware, you can only talk about some of this with certain people before right. they start to glaze over and shut down. Yep. <laughs> so this is kind of my secret way of doing it. You know, I can make a painting. And at my thesis show, was actually really interesting because a lot of people, especially the, the one with the brick, they were kind of intrigued by it and they wanted to, to know more about it. So it's kind of a, a Kickstarter for a conversation. And, I, you know, I of course, try to gauge maybe where they're at. And I try not to throw too many terms at them like astral projection and out of body. But but I still kind of work up towards that. And a lot of people are genuinely interested. And a lot of people, you know, will say, oh, yeah, you know, my sister is into that kind of stuff. Or, oh, yeah, I think I've had that before at nighttime. So it creates kind of a spark in people um, and maybe relights a flame that maybe, you know, is dwindling away, uh, you know, as we get wrapped up in the day-to-day business of our lives. And then it goes back to... Uh, the quote that's in, in your video from William Buhlman about being on the, the train ride for 70 years and not really having any clue where you're going. And that's what I think a lot of us do. So my hope is that something about my artwork might spark uh, some interest or remind people of something strange that happened to them and then you know get them to ask a question, which we all know can sometimes snowball into some pretty big life-changing events. So that's my hope with what the artwork uh, might do. But I, I also found that through painting for so many hours that I didn't really like painting itself. I liked the ideas behind the painting. I liked to come up with the images and what different objects might mean to different people. And and then when I started writing my thesis, I was just like, wow, I, I love to write. I mean, I when I write, I look forward to it and I want to sit down and just spend hours writing, whereas painting gets kind of monotonous after a while uh, because I, I really formulated the paintings in my head and I used a lot of photography and Photoshop and move things around. And then as I paint them, I make adjustments too. But usually when I start to paint it, it's already kind of solidified. The The concepts are all resolved. The meanings that like the mop bucket or the brick have kind of been processed in my mind and I, it's where I want them to be. But when it comes time to paint it, it's kind of just like, you know, you draw the plans to build a house, but then you got to build the stupid thing, you know, and spend all the time putting up the lumber and stuff. So anyway, the thesis has kind of sparked an interest in writing and uh, I've started working on a number of different books. Uh, Haven't published them yet, but I'm close with one of them. So I'm, I'm really excited to see how it's received and uh, to see what people think of it and kind of go from there. That's great. Yeah, I have to say, I actually, I went through your portfolio first before I read your thesis and just looking at your paintings, you know, like you said, when kind of you're standing next to Tom, you feel like you don't really have to talk. I, the paintings to me, I was looking at them and thinking, this is exactly, he's telling some of his experiences. I, oh, you know, oh. and I could get a feel for, especially the one of the, I think it looked like almost like a dog or a wolf coming through the doorway with the fire. Yes, and yes. I knew, and I'm assuming <laughs> this is what it meant, but, you know, it resonated with me because I understood that to be almost like an encounter with fear in the out-of-body state. It, or, that's exactly what yeah. it was, yeah. So I, I felt like as I was look, going through your portfolio, I could see some, I could just understand and see the story. And then actually um, reading the thesis and then how you embedded your artwork into it and explained it, one of the most shocking um, paintings was Old Hag for me. Oh. So... And I just want to talk about it a little bit because it freaked me out when I read your description (laughs) because it was the way that you described the kind of the meaning of the painting was exactly how I saw it and in the same order that you wrote about it. And, um, you know, people really have to check this, this, uh, 
this painting out because I was looking at it and you know, you're right. It's like, Oh my gosh, everybody's, Oh, there's somebody singing. He's playing the guitar. This looks like a great, a great time. And you know, oh, there's this beautiful woman holding this wine. And then I look over and I can never pronounce the name of that. The digger, digger, oh, how do you pronounce uh, it? The didgeridoo. Yeah. Didgeridoo. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> And then all of a sudden I could hear like the sounds in the painting. I'm like, wow. All right. Oh, now he's got the, you know, like the shoes are tapping on. I'm like, wow, this looks great. And then all of a sudden I look deeper and I gasped and I'm like, oh my God, she's sitting on a man. (laughs) I didn't see it at first. And I was like, holy crap, what is this? And then all of a sudden I look darker at who she's sitting on and then bam, right away there's the cat. And then I didn't see the cat at first. And then my eyes go to the people in the masks and then the weird horse. And I'm like, this is weird. This is eerie. (laughs) And then I went over to the Buddha. So it was just, it was kind of fascinating to experience it and look at it. And the whole thing kind of changed and it did, it went from fun to a little weird and eerie and okay, now what the heck is going on here? And I could kind of hear the sounds and then get those feelings. And when I read your thesis and the way that you described it, I was, it was exactly how I experienced it. So that was, that was really cool. That's amazing. That's, I mean, that means a lot to hear you say that, that it, you know, might have actually worked on somebody, you know, what I was trying to do. So that's, that's, uh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, yeah that, it freaked me out. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to freak you out. So. <laughs> that, that was interesting how, because I had the same, almost the same view of it, because I, I saw, all, you know, all the characters on the edges and, and then the horse and, um, it was the, the woman sitting on the man was like the last thing I saw. And that's like dead center okay. in the painting almost. And right. it's like, wow, it's it's amazing how you were able to, uh, you know, direct our eyes with the, uh, I'm assuming because the middle is kind of darker and the outer edge right. is a little brighter. But uh, yeah, no, that, that that's a pretty good skill. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's, it's interesting what, well, it's interesting how painting relates to out-of-body experiences or any kind of intuitive or non-physical experiences because there's so much symbolism and metaphor in those types of experiences and you know we tend to put our own uh symbols and metaphors into them but there's also some kind of universal ones that you can grab people's attention with and that's one thing i find exciting about painting is you know you can just put a buddha there it doesn't have to mean anything right but just it means so much to so many people culturally that it sends people in the right direction and they don't have to arrive at an exact point, but it kind of gives, it changes the feel of everything. So all of those little elements were a lot of fun to try to, to figure out where to place them and what to do with them. And I have to give a lot of credit to, to my mentor at uh, Laguna College of Art and Design. Uh, his name is Peter Zakoski. He, you know, he guided me through a lot of these paintings and it, it's funny because LCAD, that's, that's the school, they kind of focus on representational figurative artwork which basically means you're painting, you're making work that looks like real things. You're working from life. You're painting, you know, uh, nude models and that kind of stuff. And it's more of a traditional approach than a lot of uh, art schools nowadays. But the cool thing is, is that even though that's the case, having Peter help me out, he he brings in a lot of, or he encourages you to still, you can still make it really deeply conceptual, even though it's representative of something. It doesn't have to be expressive and you know, paint splatters, which is great too. But uh, he just kind of opened my eyes to that representational art can be um, hugely expressive and uh, contain a lot of deep meaning uh, that's hidden under the layers. 
So anyway, he's he's doing a great job there, and he's he's a super good guy. In fact, he uh, just real quick, he brought Tom Campbell in to do a lecture in our surrealism class. Uh, Tom was originally going to do it in person, but there was a change in plans. But he did it over Skype. So you know, here's this classroom of artists that had to watch some of his videos for homework and had a three-hour session with Tom Campbell. So that was a lot of fun. It's cool. And, you know, I wanted to ask, how was your thesis received? What, what, <laughs> like, what was the feedback that you got? Was it unlike any other thesis that your professors have read? And what, I, I'm just curious to know what they thought. <laughs> well, I, I got a lot of good feedback. I, the, the, the lady that's in charge of the, the thesis part of the program uh, helped me a lot, of course, work on sentence structure and that kind of thing. But she, she really enjoyed it and was really uh, impressed with my ability to write, which I kind of, I've always liked to write, but I've never really done it, I guess, to a, to a full degree. And then, uh, you know, Peter said it was one of the best that he's read. But I kind of have, it's kind of unfair because I have all of these, you know, cool experiences to talk about, which people, you know, enjoy to read about, I'm sure. But it's it's been interesting because a lot of times these thesis papers go into the database at the school, you know, the library, or they get put back on some dusty shelf and for the most part, part aren't really read uh, ever again because all you really need is your artwork and a uh, one-page artist statement. But... I decided to post my thesis on Facebook and put it on, on uh, my website because I really wanted to see, for one, what people's reaction was to the thesis itself and get feedback about the writing and that kind of thing. So I've had a lot of uh, Facebook friends and kind of random internet connections contact me and say, oh, wow, I read your thesis. It was so great. You know, I've had a couple of those experiences too, and it was really neat to read about you know, how you've figured some of it out and, or, you know, some people could totally relate because they've read Tom's work. And then there's people like family members that have read it and they don't have as much to say, but you can tell that it's got them thinking, you know what I mean? It's got them considering some of these things. Uh, so it's all in all, I feel like it's been, a, it's been received pretty well. So I know it's different than a lot of theses that have been written at the school, but uh, I don't know. It was, it was definitely fun to write. So yeah, I wanted to ask how how is like your family and friends uh taking this <laughs> journey the strangeness? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pretty how, well. Okay. Pretty good. I I mean I I of course talk to my kids about this kind of stuff a lot. I try not to press it on them, but you know, my uh my son will say I had a bad dream or something like that. And I'll say, well, you know, you can try to become aware in your dreams and a bad dream is a, is a good time to try when you feel yourself really scared, just try to uh, remind yourself that you're dreaming. So it's fun to kind of plant these little seeds in my kids. You know, I don't preach it to them and I don't, you know, we don't sit down and read My Big Toe and Bob Monroe every Sunday or anything like that. But I, they're important concepts that apply to life in general um, that can, I think, can really help kids nowadays kind of have a, a larger view as they proceed through life. So for my kids, I feel like it connects with them just enough that it'll have some impact on their choices later. But in terms of, you know, uh, parents and siblings and my wife and that kind of stuff, they're, they've, they're kind of coming around to some of the ideas. And as they ask questions about certain things, I'll do my best to answer. Uh, for example, they might ask uh, something about Tom or my big toe, and I'll try to answer to the best of my ability what Tom uh, and my big toe say about a certain subject or what my experience is about it. And it seems... I think a lot of it has to do with how you deliver it. If you deliver it kind of gently and uh, 
well, I don't know, without a lot of force, people would tend to be more open to it and just kind of say, yeah, this is what I found. I don't, I don't really know what's going on, but from the best that I can tell, this seems to be uh, the thing that makes the most sense. And I think that kind of loosens them up a little bit as the post is saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm certain that reincarnation exists and I know there's a larger consciousness system and, you know, demanding that all these things be true. Um, kind of scares people away. So I've tried that tactic and it, it seems to work for the most part. And it's true. I don't really claim to know any of these things at all. I just know my my own experiences and kind of move forward with what seems to be most probable. You know, there's all kinds of different variety of potential solutions that might answer the big mysteries of life. So the best I think any of us can do is just kind of find the one that seems to resonate and make the most sense based on our experiences and the data and just kind of move forward towards that, holding it lightly, knowing that it'll probably change or evolve as we do. Um, my wife is, it's funny because I'm pretty much a right-brained kind of creative person and she she is too, but she's more She's a uh, pediatrician, so she's got more of a medical, scientific, uh, left-brain mind. And so it's hard for her to hear a lot of this stuff, and she kind of wants to see, yeah, but how do you know? Where's the evidence? This kind of thing. So I'll, you know, I'll try to show her some Brian Whitworth papers and some other papers about virtual reality. And uh, it's, it's hard for her to swallow, I think, sometimes. So, But she's she's kind of on a – it's interesting. We're on two different paths that feed off of each other. She's more on a path of compassion she uh, she's a forensic pediatrician, so she specifically does child abuse cases and testifies as an expert witness in in court and sees these kids that have been you know tortured, abused, murdered sometimes. So she carries this <clears throat> excuse me this weight around, and that's her primary focus. So for me to say, hey, you should meditate and you know try out lucid dreaming, it's kind of silly. Like who am I to to suggest that to her? So instead, I think what happens is I watch her and I watch her passion and her drive to to put all these, you know, these kids and this bigger picture of having kids taken care of better, putting that first before herself. And I feed off of that energy and it teaches me maybe some things I need to work on. And then I think she feeds off of my energy of constantly seeking and questioning and and being curious. Um, And also kind of maybe my more intuitive side where, you know, she wants me to explain why I think we should buy, you know, a certain house, for example. And I tell her, "I, I don't know. I just know. I can just feel it. So I think she feeds off of some of that too. So anyway, I feel like our paths intermingle together. And even though they're really different paths, they they support each other and we kind of feed off of it. So it's kind of a nice uh, dynamic back and forth. And your your thesis, I said that right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You you had a a, a line in there where it was like either two things, either (laughs) you're you're losing your mind and having hallucinations (laughs) and... And I, I kind of had the same thought there too. Right. It's like, well, because at, I don't know, way back when, uh, maybe even 2010, was when probably the people around me started really understanding this, I guess, right. and it became more of a conversation. Uh, but before that, it's like I would go talk to people. It's like, oh yeah, I'm doing this film. It's about near death experiences. And, <laughs> And they're like, what? What are you doing? <laughs> like, you don't really believe that stuff, do you? Right. <laughs> so I was constantly being almost bombarded every time I brought it up. Or, you know, they're like, oh, you're still working on that film? You know, whatever. And yeah. It, I was always felt like there was a skeptic that I had to deal with. Right. Uh, I mean, there were small pockets of, you know, family members I could talk to. And 
uh, you know, some friends and, but, uh, and of course now, you know, five, six years later, it's, you know, you can pretty much go to anybody on the street and say, Oh, you know, you ever hear about lucid dreaming or, yeah, at a, you know, and they're like, Oh yeah, well, you know, so-and-so of mine had, a he died and came back and they saw the light and, right. you know, that whole thing. But it, it's, it's just amazing now how everything's been shifted and it's, it's like more yeah. and more people are understanding it, I guess. No, uh, definitely. I, I think that, <clears throat> I mean, I know that I hesitate to say this because I know that people probably throughout the ages have felt like this, you know, there's big stuff happening right now in my lifetime and this is really exciting, but I really feel like there's, there is a big thing happening right now. And I know in the me- metaphysical world, it's, you know, it might be called a shift in consciousness and, uh, you know, then there was the mind calendar thing and all these sort of things, uh, earth changes and that kind of stuff that's prevalent in metaphysics. But then there's also the physics side that Tom Campbell talks about a lot where we're like at the, the cusp of a completely different paradigm that's, that'll make going from a flat earth to a round earth look minuscule in comparison. And uh, if you follow the, the trail of that paradigm, if it goes from our, the understanding that reality is virtual, it just kind of, it's a natural flow that next it's people are going to figure out that consciousness is fundamental. And then from there, you know, it's like, well, what does that mean? It's, it starts to become kind of obvious that, oh, consciousness is evolving and growing. And that fits in with this idea that we're here to love and grow and um, become better, basically. So I think there's a lot of stuff happening at the same time. And you add things like the internet and technology, it's kind of like everything's hitting at one time. So I'm I'm excited to see where it's all going to go, and I, I feel like, and I think Tom's mentioned this. It could go good or it could go bad. I mean, it's kind of up to us. It's not necessarily a free lunch where somebody flicks a switch in the larger consciousness system and everybody's a little bit nicer and smarter. But I think that it's kind of like uh, we've been given the information that we need to take it to the right place. And like you said, it has to do with like the films you guys are making and the fact that more and more people are starting to say. Uh, oh yeah, I've heard about that, or yeah, I've 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 been trying to do that myself, or you know what I mean. It's kind of bringing it all into the limelight. So I think it's really exciting times. Yeah, can you give us maybe a little sneak peek of what the book is that you're writing? Because <laughs> maybe we'll have you come back on to promote it or to explain what it is. But would you like to give us a little hint? Sure. Well, I, I kind of just once I wrote my started writing my thesis, which you know is like a starts it's a two year process basically you pretty much start writing it when you start the program but you don't get to the the real meat of it until the end when you really know what you're doing in terms of artwork but during that time I started writing because I just realized I I loved it so much so what I did first is I just kind of did free writing I just just wrote what was on my mind and one of the the first time I did that or the first I guess story that I did like that evolved into kind of a short story slash novella. It's like, I think it's 17,000 words now. So I've been tinkering with that for, I don't know, a year now, off and on. And then I started probably, I think, four or maybe five other stories where the meat of the story is there. I just need to go back in and fill in some of the gaps. Um, So basically what, what those are, are they're fictional stories, but they... It's kind of like the paintings in a way. I'm presenting something that could be read by a wide audience, but I'm also sneaking in things to kind of open their mind and to maybe help them consider certain ideas. So I wouldn't even know what to compare it to, but 
I guess my hope is that like back when I was in the Navy and I was reading some of these books, I came across a few books like oh, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, and I think that's the title, uh, The Celestine Prophecy, and then some books by Mary Summer Rain. And uh, a lot of them, you know, they were fiction, but they were telling a story that really helped me along and opened my eyes to a lot of things. So my hope is that these books will kind of serve the same purpose for people. So in some ways, I'm taking the ideas that you might find in my big toe and the ideas and conclusions that I've come to on my own and presenting them to people in story format so that they might pick up those conclusions uh, as if they did it on their own and didn't actually have somebody tell them or suggest them. So, uh, you know, they kind of make the discovery or they process it in their own mind and come to the conclusion on their own. So that's, that's kind of the idea behind it. And then eventually I'd like to write a nonfiction book, or at least that's kind of burning in the back of my mind. And it would be something along the lines of kind of tongue in cheek, like a, a guidebook to physical reality. And just, it would be a compilation of some of the big ideas that are prevalent in physics, but also um, some of the ancient teachings and just the basic concepts that help or have helped me and I've seen it help other people get through your day-to-day life. Uh, Like one of the things that Tom Campbell has said, and I don't know if I'll quote it right, but it's something along the lines of, it's a very simple thing that we have to do here. Stuff happens and we get to deal with it. Uh, Most of the time, we focus on the stuff that happens when really we should be focusing on how we deal with it. So it's it's kind of in that genre of how do you deal with life and how do you deal with fear? How do you deal with everyday frustrations? Um, So that kind of thing. So that's that's in the back of my mind, kind of poking at me. So, but I feel like I've got a lot of stuff to work on myself uh, to be able to even talk about it more in depth. So that's exciting because I I kind of feel like I going into a, a phase where I'm going to do a lot of deep searching within myself and transformation. So that way I can kind of talk about it in a practical sense. So that's down the road somewhere, hopefully. That's great. And I just want to remind people that you heard him first here on the Path Lem podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see if that means anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Justin, do you want to let people know where they can find your art and read your thesis? Sure. My, uh, my art website is my full name, which is justinsnodgrass.com. And I've got my artwork on there. And then I think on that website on the about page is, uh, at the bottom is where my, the link to my thesis paper is. And then of course I'm on Facebook, uh, uh, as well. And a lot of my artworks on there too. And that's, that's how people can get a hold of me if they're interested. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on and supporting our work and being a fan. And it's always great to have this type of synchronistic, you know, connection. Yes, so. definitely. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate it. I love your work. So it was an honor to, to talk to you guys. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at Vimeo.com, GuyMTV.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at thepastseries.com or send us a tweet at the past series. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.